0: Well, I'm really glad that you're here this evening. Um, when we proposed a Sunday evening service to you all, um, I didn't know what it was going to look like, honestly. Um, and I'm, I'm dramatically encouraged by, uh, by the way that this is shaped up on this first, this first go-around. And um, we hope that it's something that becomes a, a sort of a staple in the life of Buffalo City Church, a, a, a Sunday evening service, a place to worship God together in the evenings, uh, gather together a little more uh, less formally and to just uh, just uh, consider a handful of things maybe uh, maybe some things that we wouldn't necessarily walk through on a on a Sunday morning uh, when the elders talked about this uh, actually I want to be honest like with the elders Mark and Blaze and I have talked about a Sunday evening service I don't know maybe even within the first year of Buffalo City Church's existence and as you know we're coming up on year four Five On October 4th will be the fifth birthday for Buffalo City Church But uh, it was something that we thought, well, where, where are we And what's the right timing for something like this? Um, because uh, the church has a rich history of worshiping together on Sunday evening It's not something that has been contrived within the last 50 to 60 years It's something that, um, or 50 to 60 years ago It's something that actually has been fundamental to the life and the worship of the local church for, for, a, for a long time um, and, uh, and and within the last um I want to say probably I think I mentioned this last week in 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 the morning but within the last uh 30 40 what it's 2020 now so somewhere in the 70s and 80s and even in the 90s the the concept of gathering regathering to worship on a Sunday evening was something that became we kind of got put in the rear view mirror just because attendance waned and and Churches were struggling to, to, to gain um, substantial attendance, even on a, on a Sunday morning. And so something like a Sunday evening service was something that quickly got cut. Uh, but the reality is, again, we want to be worshiping God together more and not less, because he's a God who, who has communicated clearly to us who he is through his word, and he has given us a lot of really rich understandings in, in Scripture. The mainstream of Christianity is moving away from worship, and, uh, and I say that we, uh, we want to hop out of the mainstream and into the broader stream of, of Christianity that has, that has seized or has sought to seize, uh, wherever the people of God are, has sought to seize opportunities to worship God wherever they, wherever they come. And so that's that's what we want to do together as a church, and I hope that this will grow and it'll be part of the fundamental DNA of the local church. It's a weird time. I said this last week. It's a weird time to start something like this, but that's okay. Um, hopefully this Sunday evening could be a piece where we build, and maybe it even become and it reach into our community. I mentioned a few weeks ago or uh, last week when we when we pitched this for the first time that. Even every like third or fourth week, we're just going to take the time together. We'll sing a little bit, but then instead of me getting up or someone else getting up and teaching, we'll actually just have some devoted time for prayer together as, as a congregation. Either you shout it out or pray with those around you, uh, that, that sort of thing. Uh, but the, the, the truth of, of the matter is, again, that we are created as God's people. We're created for worship, and we're designed for that. Um, even as we talked about this morning, when we thought about the Gospel of John and those opening words of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When we think about those, that's God's sovereign self-expression of himself to his people. And, and in those moments, right, when God is self-expressing, we realize that we are creatures who also express ourselves uh, and, and are designed to express in a way that makes much of God. And that's what congregational worship does. It it gives us a a venue to express self towards God and not just ending with self. And so that's part of the design of of doing a a Sunday evening worship service as well. And as things move forward in our world, um, and as we're praying for, for resolution for a lot of the things that are going on in our world, Again, I pray that this space would grow and that it would become a unifying space for us as a, as a body of Christ uh, to be prepared to go into our week uh, with a, a substantial understanding of who God is right in the forefront of our minds. So we're going to try and do this. Uh, the, the, the schedule, the time frame for this is we're just going to do it for the fall through the week before Thanksgiving. We'll take a break for the holidays. We'll reconvene Sunday evenings after, after, um, after the the holidays, and 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 then cons- consider continuing this and and hopefully growing it together. This evening, however, I, I want to think a little bit with you just about the historic processes for understanding the elements of corporate worship. So when we gather together as God's people, we do some very specific things, and we do them almost the same way each and every week. So we gather together. You'll, you'll note that we sing. You'll note that we read scripture and we pray. And then there's a sermon preaching of God's word. Um, and then from at least monthly, uh, d- depending on what the situation in the world, but we, we attempt to at least monthly receive communion together as, as a body. Um, and then as often as, as needed or as necessary, we also we also celebrate baptisms, baptisms together as as well. So the question is, where does that come from? Why are those the elements that get used? And And, and some of the questions that oftentimes get get asked of congregational worship in the Christian tradition is also, why, why Sunday? Why not Saturday? Because in the Jewish tradition, Oftentimes, uh, the or the Sabbath was Saturday, from sundown on Friday night through through sundown on Saturday night. And so, why do Christians gather to worship on Sunday? And I'll read something here in a moment that I hopefully will help with that idea. Um, there are some misconceptions I think about that, but but really, honestly, uh, throughout the course of history, there are a handful of things. That uh, that the church does together, and I named a few of those just a moment ago that we see in our Sunday morning worship service. But there are a handful of things that the church does together, and that has historically considered to be acts of worship by 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 the local church. These are simply this gathering together, like we are right now, in, the, in an assembled body of believers. So, what is what constitutes a, a congregational worship? What constitutes the corporate gathering of? Of the saints. And the first thing is just being together in the same room. That's essential. Um, being together in the same room is, is step number one. Step two is reading the word together. Step three would be proclaiming the word, or this is what we'd call like the sermon or preaching the word together, and then singing the word. You see how all of those are centered around the, the Word of God, and, and we'll get to that in a second. But then also praising, praise for God with lifted voices, attentive ears, obedient hearts. So the posture not only of the individual who's in front or the individuals who are in front, but the posture of the congregation as a whole as they come to prepare to receive what is being communicated from the front. And then uh, the reception or the receiving of of communion and and baptism those are the ordinances uh or in some circles we call them sacraments um and then something that we oftentimes don't think about but which has always been historically tied to congregational worship is uh, the visiting of widows and orphans in their distress and acts of charity these are things that that we are in this place compelled then by the truth of the gospel, by God's word, to go out into our community and to actually uh, make an impact. Um, And for the church historically, that looks like going to people who are marginalized in our community and caring for them. Again, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about widows and orphans, um, what was the text we were in? It was one of the parables. And we were talking about uh, the the widow uh, and uh, how she... um, how she continually went back to the unjust judge over and over and over again, asking for justice. The reality, again, of that situation is that widows in the, the first century when Jesus would have told that parable don't, didn't have any rights. And so for her to do that, she was pleading something according to God's standard, um, but not according to a right that society gave her. And so we would say that she is a marginalized person in our society. And so when we see the care for orphans, widows, and oftentimes in the Old Testament, also we could say the sojourner or the refugee, those are people groups that we should say when we see those in the Bible, those are the marginalized people groups in our community that the church is called to go to and care for. That's part of and has historically been part of the, the worship of the local church. Acts of charity uh, specifically aimed at individuals in our community who are on the margins. Uh, But but what I want to do again tonight is look at two passages of Scripture and then think about a couple of historical documents to kind of put us in a uh, a position. I'm going to try and do this in 12 minutes. So I'm going to... going to try and do this in 12 minutes and and put us in a position where we realize that we are a a group of people who are gathered here in Jamestown, North Dakota, and we're on the map. You can find us on the map, and you can find other churches in our our region and in our city who are worshiping on a Sunday. You can find other churches in the country, in in our state, in our country, in our world who are worshiping together on, on Sundays and even other days throughout the course of the week. But um, also, uh, what I want to do is go to his some historical understandings in order to show, to think about together the the reality that we are not bound by time, that the way that we worship is not something that's new, it's not something that is uh, contrived by us, but it is something that the church has done together historically since Jesus instituted it in in the Gospels. So the the first place that I want to go though, if you have your Bible, just open to the book of Acts. This morning we were in uh, the book of John, and the book of Acts comes right after the book of of John. Now to give you sort of a picture of what's happening in the book of Acts, when we get to the book of Acts, uh, Jesus, this is Luke's account, so the gospel writer Luke has written his gospel, and then we move into the book of Acts, and he is going to start to uh, show us what happens in the infancy of the church. So Luke has Jesus; he's raised from the dead, and then he's appearing to many individuals at the end of Luke's gospel. And when we get to uh, when we get to chapter one of the book of Acts, Luke then shows us uh, Jesus's ascension. And so he has this little. Uh, interaction that Jesus has with his disciples, with the apostles who now would go and start the church and who would um, who would be the the, the ground level of, of the church in, in its inception. And so uh, if you look at me, look, don't look at me, look at the Bible, um, if you would look with me at verse 6 in chapter 1, uh, and the apostles engage with Jesus in this way right before his ascension. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now they're thinking about a political restoration here, um, but Jesus says something to them. He, say, he says, it's not for you to know the times or season the Father has fixed by his own authority. So the political restoration isn't coming right now. Uh, hold up. And then in verse 8, he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and into the ends of the earth. And so Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit is coming. You're going to receive him, and then you're going to go out and you're going to proclaim to the world who, the, who, who I am, Jesus is saying, who I am, and, uh, and from the place that you are right now uh, to the broader region and even to the furthest most corners of, of the earth. And so the disciples receive this, and then Jesus ascends into heaven, and they stand there with their, with their mouths wide open, and then a couple guys in white show up and say, why are you standing looking? It's time to go. And, uh, and, then, and then we see that, uh, that the disciples go, and they're waiting for the time when they will be released into this mission that God has given to them. Um, and, uh, and in chapter 2, uh, we know this uh, as the day of Pentecost, when the disciples then, or the apostles then, receive the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit depends, d- descends on them uh, in the, the, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 4 of chapter 2, and they w- were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so they're speaking in foreign languages here, and, and a whole bunch of people who are standing around them say, what's going on? Are these guys drunk? And they say, no, we're not Um And uh, especially Peter, who then preaches a whole sermon to all of the people who are present um, and uh, tells them, essentially, this is like maybe the harshest sermon. He says, you all killed Jesus. That's kind of the summary of this sermon. He says, you all killed Jesus. This is who Jesus is. You killed him. Repent and believe. And then 3,000 people get saved. That's a sermon that that they don't teach you in seminary to preach, um, but the one that was most effective because the Holy Spirit was there in that moment and was moving on the hearts of men and women. But then at the end of chapter 2, this is the passage that I want to focus on because this passage becomes fundamental for the worship of the church. Verse 42 says this. Okay, so actually verse 41, look back. Uh, verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, those who received Peter's sermon were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Big revival, immediately, boom. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and, to the, and the prayers. Day by day, those who are being saved. So this is, this is the picture then immediately of what congregational worship looked like for the church that is right beginning, right? There's apostles, there's a handful of people who are around them, and then there are 3,000 people who get saved, and then they begin doing these things together. Verse 42 is the, is the important piece here. Or at least, I, I want to say it's more of like a summary statement. Uh, and then 43 through 47 flesh out what that looks like in greater detail. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, this is the, uh, the, the word of God. Uh, the New Testament is composed of uh, men who uh, authored the New Testament, and these were uh, apostles uh, in, the, in a looser sense, but they were apostles, in, and uh, the teaching that they brought was teaching that often would come from the Old Testament. Now, as time went on, their writings would become the staples of, of Christian worship, as well as what they found in the Old Testament. But at this point, uh, not much of the New Testament had been written, if none of it had been, And so, because the church is just getting going. And so the apostles' teaching is referring to their instruction about the Old Testament and how it shows us who Jesus is. So that's what we're talking about. And then to fellowship, and so, so to community, to elements of community, to gathering together. Um, like the first thing that we said, uh, the assembling together. And then to the breaking of bread, um, which would be uh, the, the institution of the Lord's Supper. When we saw Jesus say that at the end of, at the, end of the Gospels, uh, when he, in the last, on the last Supper, breaks bread with them. And so they're breaking the bread, um, they're eating together, they're growing in intimacy, and then we see prayers as well. And then we see wonderful things happening as a result of the commitment to these these things. So this is the first first picture we see of congregational worship. And if you look at the end there in verse 47, they were praising God, having favor with all of the people, uh, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The people were hearing the gospel. They were coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ through the witness of those who had committed themselves to one another in congregational worship. So time moves on, and and Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, as we read through the book of Acts, we see that Paul gets knocked off his horse on the Damascus Road, has an encounter with the risen Christ, gets saved, and even though a moment ago he was breathing murder and, uh, and, and craziness against the Christians, um, he gets saved, and uh, after a, an intermittent period of time, begins planting churches, um, all centered around gospel. The, one of the churches that he plants is in the city of Colossae. Um, and, uh, and that's where we get the letter to the Colossians. One of the key texts for the early church in understanding what it was that they would do during congregational worship is found in Colossians 3, verse 16. Just a simple, simple verse here. Uh, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns with sp- and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, the early church latched onto this as a, as a key verse for understanding how, how congregational worship would develop early, early on. With the word of Christ, again, centering all that we do around the word, we read the word, we preach the word, we pray the word, we sing the word, we do together, uh, the we center all that we do in congregational worship around the word. And so we let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is you plural, not you individually as one, but you together, all of you together, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and then we see singing also here, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and then with this posture of the heart, thankfulness within your hearts to God. And so this becomes a key, key text. And so when we see those things, those elements that are that outlined right at the beginning of our time, gathering together, reading the word, preaching the word, singing the word, praising God with voices, attentive ears, and obedient hearts, and receiving the, the ordinances, uh, all of those elements uh, were found and began to work themselves out through texts like this. Now, things, were, things continued to develop, and, and about 100 years later, uh, we have a, a great document by uh, one of the church fathers, we would call him a patristic. Uh, his name was Justin Martyr. Um, and he wrote a, a, a piece in a, in a larger work um, in about 150 A.D., and this is one of the most rich understandings of historic worship that we have in the early church it's a It's a great help to us because I think when we look at it together, we see very clearly that these are many of the things that we still do, even though this was uh one thousand eight hundred and seventy years ago. Um, this was a long time ago, and yet a lot of these things are 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 the same in how we practice them uh Justin Martyr writes this, he says, And we afterwards continually remind each other of these things, and the wealthy among us help the needy. Again, a commitment to outward focus to the marginalized. And we always keep together, and for all things uh, wherewith we are supplied, we bless the maker of all through his son Jesus Christ and through the Holy Ghost. You can you hear that language there that Paul is using in Colossians 3.16. You hear the language of with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and what Justin Martyr says here, and then this is the this is the section that's really key on congregational worship. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. And the memoirs of the apostles; these would be the letters that the apostles wrote, say Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Um, the writings, uh, uh, the memoirs of the apostles, and the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president—not the, the the person who's presiding over—that would be in our case, we'd say the pastor—the the the, the president—verbally uh, instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. This is uh, this is a sermon. He's he's pulling from the text of scripture and preaching the word to the people who are present. Then we all rise together and pray, and as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability and to the people assent, saying, "Amen." And there is a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks have been given. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by. The deacons, and so we see then the, that the Lord's supper is is taken together. I won't read the rest. The rest is great, but I'm not going to read that. We're going to continue moving moving forward, um, and then I want to give you two sort of takeaways this evening, and then we'll be we'll be done. Um, so you can see then that a hundred years even after Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, these elements are being worked out and fleshed out, and sort of massaged out of what they see here in, in the text. Um, and from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 to Colossians 3, 16, the way congregational worship is shaping up shows us that there is historical precedent for the things and the elements that are contained. If you skip ahead, post-Reformation, we just sang A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther, who is the great reformer. And on October 31st of 1517, he nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Castle door, which brought everything to a head um, that had had sort of the direction of the church over the last um, 1,000 to 1,200 years, um, and, and instituted the, sort of this reformation in the church and the recovery of some of these things that Justin Martyr. we won't go into all those details, but... But for the early church and that the patristic said and augustine and all of these individuals who had such a as such a rich understanding of congregational worship there's a recovery and a restoration of those things that happens through the reformation i'd love to talk more with you about that but i'm already three minutes past where i said i was going to be so um the in in 1645 then a little over 100 years after luther nails the 95 theses to the wittenberg castle door uh many Christians, uh, a couple of generations later, were saying, we need to get this all down, and we need to, we need to think about how we worship together congregationally. And so uh, one of the primary documents that we find for that is the Westminster Directory for Public Worship. Um, this is a document written in 1645, compiled by a handful of individuals, um, who, uh, who were really concerned about making sure that there was some kind of standard in, in, in corporate worship. But that was rooted clearly and definitely within, within, um, within Scripture, particularly Acts 2 and Colossians chapter 3. Um, and so I, I don't want to go into great detail on some of these things, um, but uh, a lot of these things that are contained here, it's just point upon point upon point, but a lot of these things uh, are, are really helpful for us, and, and really show us again that even 500 years or 400 years ago, uh, many of these things were being practiced. Um, the a lot of even what they they were concerned about was what it was like, and again, the heart of the individuals who were coming into congregational worship uh, during after a long a long week, um, and so in. 1645, again, this was written in this, in this document. This is of the sanctification of the Lord's day. Uh, the Lord's day ought to be so remembered beforehand as that, the, that all worldly business of our ordinary callings may be so ordered and so timely and seasonably laid aside as they may not be impediments to the due sanctifying of the day when it comes. And so what this is saying is get yourself ready, prepare your heart. Prepare your heart for the worship of God with, with God's people. Some of that language might be offensive to us. We're going to say like our ordinary callings, but that was just the language they used. Don't be offended. Uh, and there's just a whole host of, of ideas here contained as well that found, find their roots in places like Colossians 3.16. Uh, the, there is a, an ongoing Clarity that's given here, that that the elements contained within congregational worship are not haphazard, they're focused. They're centered on the word, they're centered on who God is, and they communicate clearly truth about who God is. Uh, it, there's a, a gentleman by by the name of Jonathan Gibson. He is a, a professor at uh, Westminster. In Philadelphia, and and I don't know his co-author of this book, but but they wrote a book together on on historic worship, and and uh, and they say that Christian worship historically has been a handful of things, and 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 I would say that we seek to here at Buffalo City Church reflect these things. Also, uh, I'll I'll read through these, and then I'm going to give you just two simple things. The first thing is trinitarian, so we see that the the God is three. God is one person, but or uh, God is one but three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, the second is focused on the incarnate word, and we, we did that all this morning by looking at John 1, 1, and 2. Uh, it's saturated with the written word, so the written word is always at a focal point for it. it in, in, it's centered on the preached word, so there's always proclamation happening in in congregational worship. It incorporates the it incorporates the visible word, and this is the ordinances the, again, uh, communion and the baptism. We see very clearly in baptism uh, the gospel being preached. Uh, men and women who are baptized into the faith are plunged beneath the water, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness, newness of life. We see that the gospel also preached in are uh, the Lord's supper, broken body, shed blood, forgiveness of sins, justification. Uh, those elements are all contained within the sacraments. They also say tied to church discipline. And now when we hear that, we think to ourselves, what do, what do you mean by that? What we mean by that is discipleship. Um, church discipline is at its core a discipleship thing. There should be a call in congregational worship for men and women to turn away from worldly things and to turn to Jesus Christ. That's a that's discipleship and that's church at the first uh, at this most fundamental level, church discipline. It affirms the faith once for all delivered, so it fixes us historically. Uh, it's a rich spiritual banquet. There should be lots of, of texts and types of understandings of Scripture read, not just hobby horses. It includes serious, structured, and studied prayer. It's punctuated with praise, and it's well-prepared and conducted. So those are the ideas and concepts, again, that we see historically throughout the church as they gather together to worship. So just two simple takeaways. I'm not going to elaborate too much on these. The first is this. When we think about the way that the church has worshipped together historically, it, it humbles us because we see very clearly that we're not contriving things but these are understandings that have come to us generation over generation faithful men and women who have worshiped God for years upon years and brought us to a a place where where there is a full-bodied and robust understanding of what is communicated to us about congregational worship in in the New Testament. And that, that's humbling. It should be humbling. We shouldn't think much of ourselves when we come to congregational worship. First, we should be thinking much of God, but we should also be recognizing that God has faithfully and uh, and uh, steadfastly delivered his people over and over again through the ages in order that they might gather together for for the worship of him. And that would be the second takeaway. The second takeaway from all of this is simply this, that we should trust God because he preserves his people in the worship of him. God delights in in us as his people who are created in his image. He delights in us and we are the most delightful when we are worshiping with him in the way in which he has intended for for us to worship him. So again, as we consider uh, continuing to worship together on Sunday mornings and in Sunday evenings, keep these things in mind. These are, we are fixed firmly within a historical context, um, even though sometimes it seems that we are, uh, we are out here doing our thing in Jamestown, North Dakota. The reality is both geographically and, uh, and, and as far as time goes, we are fixed within a larger body of believers, the universal church, all of the believers, for all, all of time.